called the Lord's Supper from what we can tell in, in church history by Paul. 1 Corinthians 11, he uses that phrase when he's uh, describing it and trying to explain how some of those things should be done. And uh, There is a physical element to it and some symbolism that uh, we take the bread and we take the cup and it, Jesus says it pictures his body and it uh, pictures the blood that he spilt for us. His body was broken and his blood was spilt and that he gave his life. Uh, but Jesus spends very little time um, in talking about the Lord's Supper, very little time talking about what we do at that point physically. Uh, very little time in how it's done. Very little time and description and exactly uh, what it is that we do physically. But what he does do is he anchors it in not the physical, but in the mental and emotional and spiritual aspect of it. You know that he says, when you do this, do this in what? remembrance of me. Now that word remembrance, what does it mean to remember? You can't just sit down and physically remember things and, and do something with your hand. It's not an action. Remembering is mental. It's emotional. It's a spiritual thing. And Jesus tells us when you do this thing, when you set aside this time to remember me. And He gives us the body and the blood examples and He gives us that picture so that that is what our focus is toward. So that that is the part of our relationship with Christ that we remember. And for a few minutes tonight, I want to uh, take part of this passage that gives us or echoes sort of a similar word or a similar thought tonight. We're going to learn in John 5. We're going to see a phrase here in a moment. One of the verses where it says that ye may marvel. And Jesus is going to tell us to marvel at Him. And it kind of echoes that thought of the Lord's Supper where He says, this do in remembrance of Me. Jesus is going to tell us some things about Himself and His nature. And He says, I'm telling you these things so that you'll marvel. So that you'll be amazed. So that you'll stand aghast at who I am and what I am like. And so for a few minutes tonight, as we look through John chapter 5 and study some of His nature, I want us to think about that. Now to set the context very quickly for John 5, we won't read these first 15 or so verses, but you need to know the story that just happened to understand what Jesus is about to teach. They're at the pool of Bethesda, and at this pool, uh, we know that the Bible says in verse 2, there was impotent and blind and halt people, that means lame, unable to walk, or uh, with limp, physically sick people. And we know that Jesus meets a man there, it says, that has been lame for 30 years. He's struggled with this disease or this physical ailment, and Jesus asks him if he has the desire to be made whole. And the man says, yes, I want to be made whole, but I have no man to help me. Now, the way that they believed about that uh, pool of Bethesda is that by some miraculous stirring of the waters, the first person that would enter the waters would be healed and uh, miraculously made whole. And some of you argue whether that's a, a true thing or kind of a myth or one of those thoughts that people really had. And there's all sorts of art, but that really doesn't matter. The point is that this man was sick and he was diseased, and Jesus found him and asked him if he wanted to be made whole. Something interesting about Bethesda itself. The word Bethesda means house of mercy or house of grace. The word bet means house and hesda uh, means, uh, means mercy or grace. Ironically, in the Hebrew language, the word hesda can also mean a place of shame or it can mean shame or disgrace. So you kind of have a double meaning to the word or the place Bethesda. Is it shame, place of shame and disgrace or is it place of mercy and grace? And the answer, if you look at this pool, is both. 
You have this pool where there's a ton of people and the man, when he talks about his own life, has a kind of a sense of shame and disgrace where he says, I can't get there without help and there's no one here to help me. And you have this pool at this place of shame and disgrace, but you also have this place of mercy and grace where Jesus heals him and makes him whole. He tells him to stand and take his bed and to walk, and he does. And he just leaves. We'll find out in a moment. He doesn't even ever find out who Jesus is. He's just amazed. It's just a miracle. He takes his bed, picks it up, and walks away. Now, then the Jewish people that were there, they get mad at him, of course, because he did it on the Sabbath. And they look at this man that hasn't walked or hasn't been able to get up in 30 years. They see him stand and walk and carry his bed headed home. And they say, you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath day. Totally missing the fact that he's just been healed. And they say, well, who, who told you? And he said, well, I, the man that healed me just told me to take my bed, so that's what I did. And they say, well, who told you that? And he said, uh, I, don't, I, I didn't catch that. Uh, that's a pretty amazing thing. And then later, it ironically says that Jesus is at the temple later, and the man is also at the temple, which I think is a sign of his gratitude towards what God had done. Jesus sees him at the temple now, he saw him at a place of physical shame and disgrace and healed him physically, and now he sees him at the house of God, and Jesus walks up to him and says, hey, you're made whole, go and sin no more. So this man that has a physical problem, Jesus meets him at the house of disgrace, changes his life in mercy, and heals him physically. Then Jesus runs into him at a spiritual place, and Jesus says to him, not just physically are you made whole, you're made whole spiritually. Go, follow me, sin no more. And now the Jews are double mad at him because when they find out what Jesus has said now, that he healed him on the Sabbath and he says he forgave his sins, the Jews are extra mad. So they come to him and they say, look if you would um, in verse 16. Look if you would in verse 16. Or, or let's start in verse 15. The man departed, told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. This is actually kind of the first death threat that Jesus gets in his ministry in the Gospel of John. They th threatened to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. He had broken their law, their spiritual rule. Verse 17, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also God was his father, making himself equal with God. Let's break down what Jesus just said in verse 17. But Jesus answered and said to him, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. If you really get that down literally, he's saying, My father is still working now, and so I keep working too. He says, My father works on the Sabbath, so I'm going to do these things on the Sabbath day too. I do what my father does. And these people get furious with Jesus. They seek even more to kill him. And then look at verse 19. <clears throat> then answered Jesus and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. I'm going to emphasize a few words here. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. 
that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Verily, verily, or truly, truly is what that means. I say unto you, the hour is come, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Let's have a word of prayer and ask God to bless the reading of his word as we open it and we study it. Dear Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for this study that you've given us. A very real story, but still has very real meaning in our hearts and lives. I pray that as we open your word tonight, you give us understanding that we'd not be confused at all as to who you really are. And we pray that uh, you'd give us strength to do that, and we'll give you all the honor and glory for it. In your precious name, amen. If you look back at verse number 19, we'll walk through kind of this part where Jesus starts speaking kind of an extended length here. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. And Jesus says, I don't, I don't do anything that my Father doesn't do. What I do, my Father is doing in me. And if you're not careful, you can blow through some of this because you kind of get lost in the language of it in the back and forth and father and son and hitherto and do and will. And we get back and forth, we kind of lose a little bit of the scope of what Jesus is saying. Notice, if you would, the end of verse 19, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. And he's not just saying in a mimicking way that God the Father and God the Son do the same things. He's not just saying like in a way that Boston would mimic me and maybe try to do some of the same things that I do behind me. He is literally saying our action is the same. Our will is the same. Our deeds are the same because I am God. Verse 20, for the Father loved, loveth the Son and showeth him all things uh, that himself doeth and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Kind of going to take our key thought or phrase tonight from that very word to marvel. Jesus, in verse 21 through 23, goes on and says, For as the Father raiseth up the dead, quickeneth them, that means he gives them, that word quicken means give them life. So as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. He's saying he's passed that on. Now you have to understand, Jesus is like doubling down on this potential explosive moment with the Jews. They're ticked about him saying he'll work on the Sabbath. They're furious that he says that God is his Father. And in monotheistic Judaism, what these Jewish people believed in their religion, that they held very dear two core thoughts about God, that only the one true God could give life and could judge life. Only God could do that. And Jesus goes on and he challenges that, not saying that God doesn't have those powers. He says God does have that power to take life and to give it, to judge at the end of life. And he says, and he's given me that same authority because I am God as well. 
you can kind of just see their faces turn red and just, poof, you know, they are about to explode. And they miss what he's trying to say. You know, think about 2 Kings 5, 7. It says, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? You see those two same things. And Jesus tells them, I have both of those powers. I am God. So getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I want us to think about these two phrases. That ye may marvel, and then you see there in verse 23, that all men should honor. Jesus tells us several things. We're going to see it in a moment. He gives us several phrases teaching us about his nature. He says, I'm teaching you this about my nature for two reasons. So that you marvel and so that you honor. Not just so that you marvel and honor God the Father, but so that you marvel and honor me. Because I am God as well. I am the Son of God. Jesus tells us in the Lord's Supper to remember. And he's telling us tonight, to marvel. He's showing us his very nature. And if we blow through some of these thoughts, we'll miss what's important. We could miss the very character and nature of God. I want to focus on the fact that Jesus tells us to marvel. Jesus says, let me show you my nature so you'll be amazed. That, that teaches us something about what our God is like. God doesn't say, here's my nature cower in fear because I could crush you though that's true he doesn't say here's my nature so be terrified here's my nature so just feel shameful about yourself here is my nature so you can just feel disappointment about your life you can feel guilt you can feel distress you can feel ashamed God doesn't say those things he says I'm telling you about my nature so you can be captivated by who I am I'm telling you my nature so that you'll be amazed and blown away by the beauty of who I am as God. Why? Is God being selfish? Does He need affirmation here? Does He crave worship and praise in a selfish way? No. He knows that He alone is worthy of glory and that we were created for His glory. And our purpose for being created in His image and living in this world in the very first place, our purpose is to glorify God. And we can only do that if we marvel at who He is. And if we honor Him in obedience. So Jesus is teaching. He's not just saying, hey, I'm God. Be amazed because I'm selfish. He's saying, I'm God. Be amazed and marvel because it will satisfy who you were created to be. There's no point, there's no thing, there's no accomplishment in this world that will satisfy you the way that you will be satisfied when you worship God. There is nothing in this world that you'll ever do that will satisfy your soul and make you feel like you're doing what you were created to do, like when you worship and you're amazed and you marvel at Jesus. And so Jesus is not just teaching them in a selfish way. He says, I'm telling you this because this is what you were created for. This is what will fulfill you most in life. Marvel and be amazed. He tells them, he, so far in his ministry, he's turned water into wine. He's called the disciples. He taught the woman at the well. He healed the nobleman's son. He healed a lame man that we just saw at the pool. But now he says there's much greater works coming. Look again in, at the end of verse 20. He will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Greater works than these miracles. 
In the next chapter, He's going to feed 5,000. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to raise the physically dead. He's going to walk on water, calm storms, teach thousands, and impact many more. But even these, Jesus says, are not the greatest works of Jesus. This is not what He tells us to marvel at, and it's not the reason that we should honor Him. The source of that marveling, the source of that honor, is found in five phrases in our passage tonight. Each one starting with the word for. So quickly tonight, we're going to look at five fours and then seek to apply them to our lives. The first two are kind of gathered together in verses 19 and 20, if you want to jot these down. He says, for, in verse 19, what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. And then verse 20, for the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that he himself doeth. And you can write this down for kind of one and two combined, that Jesus is God. Why should we marvel? For Jesus is God in will and in action. Jesus is God in his will and in his action. You have to kind of look at the sentence right before that to see what Jesus really wants to make clear. He's saying the Son is not, Jesus himself as the Son of God is not independent from his Father. He's not doing some work independently from God the Father. He's saying, truly, truly, I say unto you, I can't do anything or I don't do anything of my own accord. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't do. We are the same. Explicitly, He's saying, I am one with the Father. I am one with God. He says the Son does nothing by Himself, nothing of His own initiative. Christ does nothing away from the independence of the Father, though God has given Him all power to do those things. What is Jesus teaching us? He is teaching us, and we, got it, we have to understand this because it's the core of our faith that He is God. And we're going to see in a few moments why that really should mean something in our lives. The will is a property of nature and not the person. You say, well, is, is there really a trinity? Is there God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Yes, there are. But their will is the same. Three persons, but one nature. Three persons, but one action. Three persons, but one purpose. And Jesus says, I never stray from what the Father has intended because the Father has given me all these things. We'll flesh some of these things out later as we go. But three in person, but here we're seeing that Jesus is one in nature with His Father. So that's the first couple, four sentences. Number three, look at verse number 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. Like we said, the word quicken there means give life. So number three, you can write down, we should marvel at God, or we should marvel at Christ for He is God in giving life. We should marvel at God, or we should, excuse me, we should marvel at Jesus because He is one with God in will and action. We should marvel and be amazed at Jesus because He gives life. Don't let that go by too quickly. Think of what Jesus is saying. The Father, God the Father, what does He do? He raises the dead. He gives them life. And this is understood by these Jewish people to be God's Ability alone. And it isn't amazing that Jesus thought towards us. Think about the fact He says, I will give life, or the Son gives life. Look, look at the end of verse 21. Don't lose uh, sight of that. It says, even so the Son quickeneth or gives life to whom He will. 
to whom he desires. Think about the fact that if you are here tonight and you claim to be a Christian, you have faith in God, you are a Christian because Jesus wanted to give you life. Because Jesus wants to give you salvation because it was his desire to come to this world and die for you, to sacrifice his life for you, to raise himself from the dead, to live victoriously forevermore, and that was his desire towards you. It doesn't say the Son gives life to whom He has to. The Son gives life to who the Father makes Him. Jesus was sent to die on a cross, but He wasn't sent unwillingly. He was God's only begotten Son sent to die on a cross, but He he wasn't bound there by someone that was stronger than Him. He wasn't put there or placed there outside of His own will. He says, I give life because I can. I give life, and that's my desire. That's my will, is to give life. No matter what it takes to do so. The the disciples, the Jews, those that are around Him, don't understand the fact, yes, Jesus has that life-giving power, but He has not cultivated that yet. He has not brought that out by dying on the cross. I, I wonder if any of the disciples were to see Him on the cross and think back to His words. He says, I give life to who I want. And think about the fact that He died on the cross to give that life. I wonder if they they thought back as we should think back and marvel at the fact that to give us life, He gave His very own. That to give us life, He gave Himself to death. Because He is God in giving life. Number four, look at verse 22. So we have four, we should marvel God for, He is one with God in His action and will. We should marvel at God because He gives life. Marvel at Jesus because He gives life. Number four, we should marvel at Jesus because He is God in judgment. Look at verse number 22. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Now, just a couple chapters before, it says that the Father sent the Son not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And now it's saying that the Son has all power to judge. Now remember, those two things are not the same. Condemning and judging are not the same. He's saying He's not sent to condemn the world. He's not sent to clean house. God says, I'm not sending my only begotten Son here because I see that the world's in so much trouble and it's a mess and He's going to clear the slate and start over. He says, I'm sending my Son because He's going to sacrifice Himself because I love those people that are in the world. And now just a couple chapters later, all of a sudden He's saying that He judges these things because Jesus came to this earth as a Savior to save us from our sins, but He's coming again one day to judge the world those that are saved and those that aren't. Because only He has the power to judge. God the Father has that power. He says, I can judge, but He he gives it over to Christ. Why? Because of His sacrifice on the cross. Not only did Jesus earn the right by dying for us and raising from the dead, not only did He earn the right to give life, He earned the right to judge our lives. And we often think that when we hear, well, Jesus is going to judge us. Judge has a negative connotation, right? You ever been in a courtroom and different things, and I've been in a couple of different courtrooms and a couple of, not for, not for myself, but some of you looking at me like, oh yeah, we knew that. Not for me. 
But I've been in a couple of different courtrooms where the judges said a couple of different things. I've seen the judge say, well, you know, we're going to find you, find you guilty. And that's kind of what we always associate with. And we say, well, if Jesus judges me, he sees me guilty. Right? But have you ever been in a courtroom or seen a courtroom where the judge can also declare innocence? And where the judge can say, we find you not guilty. And when Jesus is teaching this here, he doesn't go and delve into all that, but he implicates both of those things. I have the power to judge to declare guilt or to declare innocence. Guilt to those who will not believe in my name. Guilt to those who will not trust in me. Guilt to those who will not trust and take my sacrifice for them on the cross. To those that will not take my free gift of salvation. Guilt. But to those of you that will take that. Those of you that will call yourselves Christian, those of you that sit in this church tonight that have trusted Christ in faith, he says, I can judge you, but let me tell you a secret is what he says, I will find you innocent. I will find you not guilty. Oh, you, that's a great thing for me when I think about it. Because I'm a very, very guilty person. And many of you agree. I have a lot of guilt for things, or should have a lot of guilt for things I've done in this life. But Jesus says, I'm going to declare you innocent and not guilty, not because of what I have done, not because I've figured anything out, not because of anything I will ever do, and not because of any amount of good deeds I could ever amass and put together. He says, I'll declare you not guilty because I'll pay for your guilt. I'll declare you innocent because I will take your shame. I will judge you, but I will judge you innocent. And so when we look at Christ and marvel at Him and stand amazed in front of Him, we should marvel because He's one with God. His action is will. He does only what God has intended for Him to do because He is God Himself. He's one with God, but we should also marvel because He gives life and he gives life, but he also judges. But he doesn't judge us if we're Christians of our own accord. He judges us in mercy. And it should make us stand totally amazed, totally lost in the fact that Jesus loves us. Think about the fact that he's coming again one day as judge. And only those who trust in him will be saved from that judgment. There's a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I've skimmed over it. It's not something you should base your life off of. Uh, it's a work that compares, it's by a man named Joseph Campbell, and what he does is he compares all the religions of the world and all the mythology and all the different belief systems. And he discusses it, and he kind of asserts towards the end of the book, he says that all of these archetypal narratives he says this he calls he what he calls the hero's journey and he says that all of these structured religions come down to this thing where they believe in a hero's journey some way or another where he says here's a well-known quote or kind of from it he summarizes his thoughts he says a hero ventures into the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder and then fabulous forces are encountered and a decisive victory is won and the hero came back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow on his fellow man. That's what he kind of just said. All religions have that in common. Uh, there's a man that read behind this book, actually took it very much to heart. Uh, he put it in his books. His name was George Lucas. He wrote all the Star Wars 
uh, books and uh, all those different things, and you'll see that kind of grafted. And he was very, that book was very influential in his life. You kind of see that, that there's always this one that goes out and ventures and does some supernatural thing, and then he can come back and he can save everybody, and that was kind of built into his thing. There's a lot of people that believe that all religions do that. There's another man named uh, Jack Johnson. I only know of him because um, I watch Curious George with my uh, daughter at times, and uh, he sings some of the songs in Curious George. And as I was listening, I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of a nice little mellow tune. And some, there's cute little songs. Okay, we love each other. I love you, Ellie. You know? So I was like, oh, I'm going to look this guy up. So I looked him up a little bit and uh, came across this. He writes a lot of like, these folk acoustic kind of songs. But he was actually impacted by that man, that same writing, the man with a thousand, or the hero with a thousand faces. And he wrote this song. And I want you to think about this, the words to this song. And this is how culture views God and they view this savior of these different religions he says this i heard this old story before where the people keep killing for different metaphors it doesn't leave much to the imagination so i want to get the imagery back he says i know this isn't easy so i turn the page and read the stories again and again and it seems the same but with a different name we breaking we're breaking and rebuilding and growing and guessing and he goes into a course he says we'll compete but never know you see the worldview that he has there. He writes a second verse. He says, knock, knock on the door. You can kind of guess what he's hinting at there. Knock, knock on the door. I'm here to tell you a metaphor. Mine is better than yours, and you can either sink or swim, but things look pretty grim if you don't believe what this one is feeding. It's got no feeling, he says. So I read it again and again. It's just the same with too many different names. Our hearts are strong. Our heads are weak. We'll always be competing but never knowing. And that, I submit to you, is a pretty good summary of how our culture understands religion. They look and they just see a bunch of names. Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, all these diff different people. There's just a bunch of names, the same, same thing with a bunch of different faces, he says. But tonight we know that it's not the same. That Jesus is not the same. Jesus is not a metaphor. He's not an idea. He's not just one of the good guys, but we are told here that He is a life-giving God, a judging God. His action and will are God Himself. He is different. And we'll see how. Look at the final one in verse 26. The final four statement here. Verse 26 says, For as the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given life to the Son to have life in Himself. Now, what does it mean, this phrase, life in Himself? He says, just as you believe. Now these Jewish people that he's talking to, they believe God the Father had life and has life forever. That God the Father is eternal. That He has lived forever past and He will live forever future. That He is outside of time itself. That He created all that is, including time. And that God is life. That was their belief. But now Jesus says, but the Son is life as well. And not that God gave Him life at birth when He came to earth, but that Jesus had life long before that. And that should impact how you think about your Savior. It wasn't that God sat around for thousands of years, millions of years, and just decided, okay, now I'm going to create this person, Jesus, and I'm going to send Him to earth and make Him die for everyone. Jesus existed for all of the time that God did. Jesus has existed for all of eternity just like God the Father. And Jesus has known for all of eternity that one day He was going to come in mercy and die for sinful creatures. 
And he went ahead and created us anyway. And he went ahead and he let this world fall into sin, knowing what it would cost him. But knowing that in him was life itself. He knew that one day that grave and death would swallow him up, but that it couldn't hold him. He knew that one day he'd poison sin and he'd poison hell itself and it would spit him back out in life. And he says, my life is for you. And he says, I tell you these things so you'll just be amazed. I tell you these things so you'll just marvel at who I am. But we, for some reason, go through life and he's just there. He's just a part of it. He's just an add-on. He's not a whole lot different than my gym membership or my library card. He's just something else I have in life. But shame on us. Because he says, you're supposed to marvel. You're supposed to honor. Think about Psalm 2 where he says, kiss the son lest you lest the Father be angry, God says to us, you cannot honor me unless you honor the Son. You cannot love God unless you love Jesus Christ as God Himself. Not just a sacrifice, not just something that was there for you. And here's the core, one of the core problems we have. Here's why we struggle with that at times. Because down, deep down, we don't like it. We don't like that Jesus is God Himself. I say, well, I would never say that. That's true. We would never, you'd never say I don't like that Jesus is God himself. But here's what it implicates. That anything he ever said, anything he ever taught, anything he ever did, anything he ever commanded was not just a suggestion. It's not just a way you can try to live your life. It's not just kind of a, a good, helpful thing that he says, and maybe I'll, I'll take some of that. You know, you read a book about like a diet, you may not go fully on to that diet, but you'll like take some things from it. You're trying to like read a, a self-help book or whatever, man, you'll, you'll glean some little, you may not try everything in that, but you'll glean some of the things and try to apply a few of those things in your life to make yourself better. That's how we treat Jesus. I read what he commands in the New Testament, that I love others the same way I love myself, is what he commanded. And I kind of try to apply that, Right? But I don't want to feel super guilty about not really being able to do that. He commands me to love righteousness, to love purity. He commands me to follow him recklessly. He commands me that he should have the preeminence. That there should be nothing in this life that is more important. And here's why I don't like the fact that Jesus is God. Because everything that he has said and everything he's taught, everything he's commanded, is now not just suggestion. It is God's word to you and God's word to you to me and we struggle and it's hard to be amazed and it's hard to apply those things and it's hard to keep in sight that first john 2 23 says who he who does not have the son does not have the father jesus says there is only one god there's only one jesus and jesus is god in closing i want to read you just a couple things and we'll be done a man named Samuel Zwemer, Zwemer was once called <clears throat> the Apostle to Islam. He was, lived from 1867 to about 1952. He was a missionary to the Muslim world, and then came back to teach about 
their culture and how we can reach them for Christ. And uh, he, he said this. He said, Christians gladly affirm the strength of theism, that is, the belief in God. And we assert as strongly as do all Muslims and Jewish people that there is only one God. But because there is only one God, there can only be one gospel. But where we fail is that there is only one Christ. And we fail to truly grasp it. He says, the only Christianity that has a missionary message for the Muslim world is vital Christianity that places Jesus as the preeminent center of its faith. It says, it is the only Christianity that can meet the deepest need of our Muslim brothers. Our love for them is only increased by our intolerance for the rejection of Christ. Not in that they just disagree with us, but it is struggle and it pains us to bear that they don't know the Savior the way that we know the Savior. It's not just that you disagree. It's that when I look at a lost world, he says, it's that when I look at a lost world, they don't see how precious Jesus is. And I am jealous, he says, for other Muslims, for other people, for lost people. He says, I am jealous for those lost people to see God the way I know God. I'm jealous for them. He says, he quotes one Christian Muslim woman who had just been converted. He says, I long for the day when many will bow before him and many previous Muslims will confess the words, I see now that the center of your religion is Christ and I also want to love and serve him. So that's our question tonight. What is your Jesus like? Is he just kind of a default thing spiritually? Or is he the passionate love of your life that you marvel and that you honor because only Jesus can give you life and only Jesus can control your end and only Jesus is the final judge. Only Jesus is life itself. Only Jesus could take a lame man by the pool at a house of shame and turn it into a house of mercy. Only Jesus could take that man from the house of God and make him whole. And why should we marvel at that? Because he's done the same thing for you too. You say, I've never been lame. I've never been blind. No, but... Once I was spiritually lost and blind and lame and wretched, unable to help myself, and just like he, I had no man. Jesus took me and led me to a place of shame and disgrace. To a hill called Kokoth. to a place of the skull, to a hill called Calvary, which means agony and anguish and torment. And he took my shame and he took my disgrace, he poured my judgment and he turned that nasty hill into a hill of mercy and a place of grace. I'll finish with this. One, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes by a man named C.S. Lewis, he said this, said Christianity is, if false, is of no importance. And if it is true, is of infinite importance. But the one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. And I wonder tonight, do we marvel at Jesus? Let's pray. God, we failed you. And I ask you to forgive me, you know. 
uh, my emotion at this point is just, as, even as I preach, you convict me of my own sin, my own failure. I pray that you change me and that tonight, as we try to follow your command, as we try to do this in remembrance of you, that we would marvel. Just be amazed. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Stand if you would. Turn to page 305. Jesus paid it all. Something we marvel at. I wonder tonight, what does your Jesus look like? Do you really love him? Because when he says, this do, take this bread, do it in remembrance of me. What is your remembrance of him? Do, you, do we really care? Are we really amazed? I'd say maybe tonight, there might be some like me that you realize before I can say that I this, do this in remembrance that I first need to marvel and see what God's done for me. Let's see. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. 